Let's pray that God would uh, help us to get the gist of this part of Hebrews. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we had last week to at least focus our attention upon your greatness. Uh, So extraordinary, so beyond our capacity to understand. We look forward, Master, to the day when we will see you and we will worship you so gladly and joyfully. We pray now that we would see you through your word now by your spirit. Uh, Help us to understand your word and uh, we pray that you would change us by it. We ask this in your name. Amen. One of the very few movies that my wife and I both enjoy is um, uh, that little one where the little guy goes around saying, Inconceivable! And uh, what we were looking at last week was the inconceivableness of Jesus and that to make any comparison between him and any other person is just ridiculous and it's doubly ridiculous because if you compare Jesus even with the greatest of the angels, that's ridiculous. And if the splendour of an angel is incomparable to the Son of God, therefore the splendour of the wisest and the best amongst the rest of humankind is unworthy of comparison. So that's where Hebrews starts. It wants to introduce you to the majestic uh, Christ who is just inconceivable in the end. We can describe something of the truth and get a sense of the direction, but I doubt that we can really say that we understand in some complete way his greatness but at least we get some idea of how to relate to him. And the the book of the Hebrews was written to a bunch of people who were weary. They were fed up. They were tired. They'd they'd been serving God for some time and it was much harder than they expected. And the journey, as it was for the Israelites, seemed to take much longer to get to the promised land. And some of them were giving up and some of them were slowing down. And the writer writes this in the power of the Spirit in order to energise them in order to refresh them, in order to give them fresh uh, energy for the steps in the journey to the rest that God has promised. So let's continue looking at that. In a sense, if last time we looked at the greatness of Jesus, this one will do what Hebrews often does. It will now look at the, the lowliness of Jesus, the nearness of Jesus. And Hebrews will bounce us between these two things, the greatness of God and the tenderness of God. The greatness of Christ the nearness of Christ, the lowliness of Christ, uh, so that we get a uh, a really healthy picture of him and how to relate to him. Uh, Some of you may have many clothes designed by Johnny Versace, who is, um, although I doubt it. In fact, I don't know who wears those clothes. You see these people on those runways and think, not that I ever look at them, but you see those people and think, when do you ever see, one, anyone who looks like that and two, anyone who dresses like that? But nonetheless, there's obviously an industry. In his last written interview, Johnny Versace was asked about... um, God. And here was his comment. I believe in God, but I'm not the sort of religious person to go to church. See, you should come to Ancon to find out why. I'm not the sort of religious person to go to church. I'm not the sort of person who believes in that fairy tale about Jesus born in a stable with donkeys. No, I'm just not that stupid. I cannot believe that God, with all the power that he had, would have to have himself born in a stable. It would have been so uncomfortable. Now, I'm thankful for his honesty, but that sense of this is clearly, you know, clearly God wouldn't be born in a stable. Clearly God wouldn't lower himself like that. If God was going to visit, he'd visit like the Queen used to visit in her own boat and that sort of stuff with all sorts of comforts. How is it possible to believe that if Jesus Christ really is 
that magnificent, even greater than the greatest of the angels, to say nothing of humans, that he looks when he comes amongst us so sad and so small and so inconsequential often, particularly in the symbol that Christians have chosen to make that which represents us and him, which is the cross, where he dies clearly as a weakling and as a loser in the game of history. And so people have wondered, and this passage I think will help us to get a handle on it. Uh, Let's look firstly at, um, coming back to the the passage itself in Hebrews 2, the concern of uh, chapter 1 is sort of spelled out for us at the beginning there, chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4, which is that we don't drift, we don't find ourselves turning off the engine and just drifting and slowly finding ourselves having moved away from Christ. But then he moves on. It is not to angels, in verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. And that's interesting. If you ask, what is Hebrews speaking about? What he tells you here is he's speaking about the world to come. He's speaking about that place which Christ is leading us to. One of the difficult things, I think, in Christianity is the way that it, it keeps asking us to do two things at once. To believe in the solid reality of eternity and to recognise how that is, uh, that is vast and order to control all things and yet... Life on this earth is still real and the things that we do matter. It doesn't sort of dwarf one thing into insignificance but the two things are going on. But here he says he really is speaking to them in this world about the world that is to come. What is elsewhere called in this book the city with foundations that God has built. Um, it's called the rest that we're marching towards the world to come. Verse 6. But there is a place where someone has testified what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you did care for him You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now here's this uh, great psalm, Psalm 8, written by King David. He's out in the fields, he's admiring the naughty of the stars and he thinks about himself so small. And he says, you know, God, when I look at the stars that you've made, what is a human being that you would care about him, that you would even notice? Uh, and yet he doesn't fall for the sort of silly trap of thinking that because something is small it's therefore not very valuable. Now we know that's not the case in many things. Often the smaller something is the more it costs you. And so but here he's, uh, you know, it's possible for humans to do what isn't particularly uh, necessary logically to say that because humans are small they're not very significant. God says no that although we are very small he's only made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honour and everything is under our feet. This is where God says to a humankind, go forth and have dominion, rule. Now some people get very nervous about that. They, I think, fairly unfairly and accurately blame the ecological disaster in the world on Genesis 1, which is kind of strange because it's not as if many people who are, in, say, engaged in industrializing India or China or any one of a, a number of countries are doing, oh, Genesis 1 says go forth and have dominion, okay, let's go and rape and pillage our way through nature. It's a strange sort of connection some people have tried to make. And we know anyhow that when you rule in God's world it means that you serve, doesn't it? That's the way the Bible speaks. The man, humans were put here in order to rule, to care, to be like God in the world. Yes, to have dominion, but to have a God-like dominion, a stewardship and a caring. The mark of greatness, Jesus says, in God's kingdom is to be like God who rules by serving. I remember serving at a school for some years where the headmaster and I would sometimes speak to the staff at various gatherings about... You know, Christian leadership, even in the classroom, means being servants. I remember one or two of the teachers saying, I'm not going to serve those little rats. I'm not their servant. Didn't get it. Didn't work it out. That in order to lead in a godlike way, 
we serve. But humankind are said, we're said to be the rulers. God has put everything under our feet, everything under him. But then you obviously say, but that's just not true, is it? Does it look to you as if everything is under humankind feet? I mean, the Boxing Day wave didn't indicate as if humankind had it all under our control. All sorts of sad accidents on camps and that where trees just fall off and kill people. Large sharks come up and deal with their hunger by a leg or two of a human being. Snakes, spiders, all sorts of things. It doesn't look as if we're having dominion, does it? We, we do our bit. We win some, we lose some. And that's what he, go, what's, what's what he says there uh, in verse 8. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death. Now, friends, we, with this psalm, Psalm 8, it's a little hard to tell whether or not he's just talking about humankind or whether or not all along he's talking about the Lord Jesus. Uh, the reasons for that is because Jesus will often call himself the Son of Man, which comes from this psalm and from Daniel 7 and other places. It seems to me now that he's probably firstly talking, first and foremost, thinking about what it means to be human. The humans are designed, were originally intended, uh, in order to rule, in order to have that particular place in the earth, which we simply don't have. When you rebel against the designer, everything in the end begins to fall apart. So he says, well, we don't see that, although it is said of humankind, what do we see? Well, we see Jesus. Where do we see him? Well, one of the words that's used in the letters of Paul to describe what happens when you hear the gospel is, it speaks of Christ being placarded in front of you that what you see when you hear the message of Jesus is him. That's what's uh, proclaimed to you. So through this letter a number of times it will speak about fixing our eyes on Jesus, saying that our attention, our mind, our understanding and our imagination should be focused upon him. He says we don't see humankind living as fully developed, as fully intended humans as God meant us to be. We're not just broken in our personal relationships and terribly turned in on ourselves but we're simply not in the relationship with the creation that we were designed to be. But we see Jesus, who, as it says in that psalm, was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned. See that although he was the one who actually made the angels and the angels that to worship him, there was a period where that great one actually became lower than the angels and became smaller and seemingly, seemingly less significant. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honour. So he says the, the answer to what it is to be human and what, what's, what it's like being human and why it's so messy is actually found in this Jesus who humbled himself, who took upon himself this humiliating position of being lower than, of being a servant, of being living in the broken world that uh, sin has made it. And that's why in the end I think he finishes up with almost a double glory because he's lowered himself in grace suffered for us and died and then returns to his throne but with a double honour, not only now as the creator but as the one who has loved in grace and been so good to us. I think it's like where Jesus says in John's Gospel that the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And you think, well, didn't, didn't he love you before the world was made? Well, of course he did. But there's something about the willingness of Jesus to humble himself and to die and to love in that way that gives him a double honour from the Father and of course from us who have both been created and redeemed through his suffering. So Jesus in the end becomes the, the one fully orbed, 
undwarfed human being. If you want to know what it means to be a human being, it's to be like Jesus. And some have suggested, in fact the guy who preached on Sunday morning at church suggested that the miracles that Jesus does, like the catching all those fish in that big thing in Luke 5, is simply what perhaps mankind could have done if we hadn't sinned. It's just humans having dominion. It's humans being able to know where the fish are instead of just hoping. So um, it's, uh, when you want to look at what it is to be a human being, I think the answer is to look at Jesus. It's funny, isn't it? Because you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it is to be human? Look at Jesus. Because we were made in the image of God. And Luther sings about that. We don't often sing that old hymn by Martin Luther. Uh, a mighty fortress is our God. But the second verse says this. Did we in our strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Now it's not often that we think about Jesus as a man, is it? We normally think of him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, the Saviour, and look, which is what Luther believes as well. But he's right to speak about Jesus as a man. He's God's man and he's on our side and we're on his side. Thus ask thou who this may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord surveyeth his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle. So this notion of Jesus Christ as the one true man, the new Adam, the one who comes to restore humans and the whole creation, picked up as you know in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. But why? Why does he come down amongst us? Why does he lower himself? Why is that as it were necessary? And the next few verses I think will help us understand that. He does the journey from glory to lowliness, to glory. Why? The end of verse 9. So that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, Jesus is already arrived at his place of glory. He is now at the right hand of the Father and the Father is working things out to put all things under his feet. And that, you see, is also your destiny. If your faith is in him, where Christ is, is where you will be. So in Revelation, a number of times, to a church that, like this one in Hebrews, is suffering, he will, he'll offer them not just to be in his presence, but to sit on his throne, which is an extraordinary thing for the Son of God to say. So here he's speaking about the destiny of Jesus being the destiny also of those who he's come to save, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Right? That's why he's come, to bring others with him. He's come down amongst us that he may take us with us. He is the author, the pioneer, the beginner of salvation. If you like, like Blaxland, Lawson and Wentworth, you'll remember from your social studies or your history that here the little white guys were um, stuck on the, on the Cumberland Plain, unable to get through the mountains until Blaxland, Lawson and Wentworth found a way across the ridges with the help of some convicts and a few Aboriginals who we don't know who they were really. But Blackson, Lawson and Wentworth, we know. They were the guys who worked out the way and the road basically originally followed their route. They were the pioneers. They found the way through and over that opened up the rest of Australia to the white guys. And that's the sort of picture that Jesus got here when it says he's the author of salvation. He's the one who hacks through the undergrowth and finds a way back from death to life. He is our leader. And it speaks of him here being perfected. 
I don't know if you thought much about the, the long period of Jesus' life when he was not perfect. A period where you could say Jesus is imperfect. But that's clearly what the letter of Hebrews believes. At least three times it speaks of Jesus becoming perfect, which assuming, you know, presumably means that there was a period when he was not perfect. Well, that would be interesting to work out what that means. Let's, uh, let's have a look. You can see the word is there in verse 10. That God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. We tend to think of the word perfect in somewhat moral terms, understandably. That's just not the way it seems to have been used in the first century. So you could speak of someone being a perfect thief, which didn't mean that they were morally wonderful and gave to charity and stole from the rich to give to the poor or something like that. It simply meant they were absolutely fully equipped. They knew all the tricks. They could get in through windows, through doors, under the floor, through the roof. They could pickpocket. They could do armed hold-ups. They could do, in name it, this was the perfect, the complete thief. It's a vocational thing more than a moral development thing. So in chapter 5, verse 9, it says this of Jesus. I'll start at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of salvation. So having been made perfect, through his life of obedience and suffering, then he becomes the source of salvation. Presumably there, as here, until he was made perfect, he could not bring you salvation. Just being the eternal son of God wouldn't do the trick. There was something else that he needed to do so that he was fully equipped, complete and adequate in order to bring you salvation. And there are two things that come uh, out of this and one of them is freedom. So we're at point two. Let's keep reading. I'll start at verse 10. It's an important set of verses. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says... I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now, that's a, that's a pretty heavy sort of passage there. There's lots of ideas jostling around. Jesus became thoroughly human so that he could free humans. The picture of us here is that we were enslaved, verse 15. What, in what way were we enslaved? Well, it says here, there's a number of other places the Bible speaks about slavery. Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death that human beings live with a general fear of death. I think it's fair to say that we don't necessarily think about it all that often, but when we come face to face with death or any great danger, we are fearful, understandably. Those of you who have heard the very sad pleading of Douglas Wood, that Australian guy who lived in America and is now in Iraq, you can hear the terror in his voice because he knows, in a way that we sort of don't, that he lives on the edge of death as he pleads for people to release him. It's doubly sad because he knows they're not going to answer. 
very unlikely that the governments that he's asking to change their policy will. But what the Bible says here is that people have a great fear of death. What do you do if you meet people who say they're not afraid of death? Meet people say, I'm not afraid of death. You've really got a choice at this point, either to believe what God says about us or what a person affirms about themselves. Frankly, I'm going to go with God on this one. And I think people who say they're not frightened of death have either not thought about it or are just telling small fibs. If you had a large gun and you could pull it out of your bag and hold it next to their head, my impression would be they probably would have reactions of fear. Um, I think we often don't fear death at a conscious level because we simply have learnt to deny it. I've written the name down there of a very interesting chap, an atheist man called Ernest Becker, who in his uh, book, The Denial of Death, which he won a number of important prizes, has suggested that the whole of Western culture, including our desire to go shopping, can can be understood as part of our attempt to deny the reality of death. We live in a culture that won't talk about death, that won't deal with death. This is one of the reasons we're so keen on medical research. It's one of the reasons I think, hard to know this, why we've got an obsession with youth rather than age or wisdom. Those things that are as far away from death as possible. Certainly for people my age, which is old, um, a lot of the concern to be healthy and to go running uh, is to do with the fear of death. It's staying alive longer, which is why we were so outraged when the man who got a whole generation running died as a young man of a heart attack. Because what's the point of jogging for many people if in the end the great founding father of the jogging in the Western world uh, unfortunately had a malfunctioning heart? But this Bible here says, says that people have a great fear of death and we're a slave to that fear. We've got nowhere to deal with it, which is one of the reasons we try not to think about it. Some of you will know some of the great quotes by some very thoughtful men. Let me give you an example from Ernest Hemingway who said this, Life is just a dirty trick. It is a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Here's a man who looked at the fact that no matter what you do in the end, it's a short journey to death and then you are a long time dead. And he found it in the end so miserable that he shortened the journey and killed himself. Bertrand Russell, who was so confident as a young man and got increasingly melancholy as he got older, writes this, One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark, blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness. It remains only to, cher- to cherish, ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that enable his little days." These people are saying, in the end, it's just a question of time. We're all enslaved by death. There's just no way out. You can try to whistle and say it's nice. We can read that particularly irritating poem that's read at so many funerals now. Don't cry, I haven't gone, I've just slipped into the next room. You know, that poem is well intended by the people, but just bull, isn't it? They have left. They're not in the vestry in the church. If they were, they should come out. And, you know, say, hey, it was just a joke. Um, You know, this attempt to say that death is not a horrible thing, it is a horrible thing. Every loving relationship terminated by death. Every life is one certainty. And this passage here says that human beings are enslaved by death and Jesus comes in, he becomes one of us to deal with the question of death. He needs to become flesh and blood. 
He needs to be on our side of the equation. In order to be a high priest, as we're going to get to in a minute, he needs to be on our side. He needs to be on this side. He needs to be one of us with blood and flesh capable of dying. And that's what it says he does in verse 10. So in verse 9 it says he tastes death for everyone. And verse 14 it speaks about the effect of his death, which is that it, it disables it disables the devil who through his leading work in the question of sin leads that whole game from life to death as he leads us to believe that the way forward is to move away from the Lord of life and to sin and the wages of sin is death. And Jesus comes in order to deal with that and he cannot deal with it on the God side. He can't actually deal with the question of our sin and its need to be punished and dealt with unless he becomes flesh and blood like you unless he becomes human in every way, it says, in every way like you, except the 4 verse 15 will say, except sin. So he becomes absolutely, thoroughly human, really and truly human. This, I think, is hard to hold together. If you're sort of a, a genuine sort of Bible-believing Christian, one of our great fights, sometimes sadly even in the church, is to maintain the reality of Jesus being the Son of God, that he's not just a prophet. He's not just a guru. He really is God. He really is the one who created all things, who will judge all things, who sustains all things. But it's difficult to keep saying that and not in the end to finish up with someone who's not quite human. Not quite. Uh, some of you will know that some of the early church writers, in due respect for Jesus, argue that Jesus did not have an evacuative system, which is the large intestine and below. Now, it's kind of, oh, silly people, but they've got a strong sense of the bigness of God, so how, how can you possibly believe that the God who made all things should actually go to the bathroom? Right? So they sort of, they wanted to keep affirming the reality of his divinity and of his inconceivability and, and it was hard to hang on to the other side. So I have a friend who's fairly critical, um, did his theological study in America and keeps giving me a hard time about what a pathetic bunch we all are here. But he, um, he reckons that it's not uncommon for, for you know, straightforward bible Christians to finish up as uh, docetic Christians. And some of you will know, this is a, a movement in the early church and it comes from the word to seem. That Jesus only seemed like a human being. He wasn't really fully, thoroughly, truly human. He looked like a human. He seemed to be a human. But he wasn't as really human as you are. And these passages here in all sorts of ways in Hebrews will want to affirm the fact that he is thoroughly, truly human. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by death he might destroy him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He shares our humanity like us in every regard except for sin. And sin is not part of what it is to be human. I sometimes have uh, ridiculous arguments with one of my daughters um, because uh, in the, just the, you know how parents can be nitpicking pains and, and uh, one of them will say, oh, I'm only human, that's why I'm... No, you don't sin because you're human. There's nothing wrong with being human. It's the sinful infection. We've got to maintain that being human is a good thing from the hand of God. So Jesus was genuinely, thoroughly human in every way, but he didn't have that particular infection we had. 
And this passage here says that the reason why he became one of us, the reason why he was born in a serious lack of comfort in the stable, in the reason why he seemed so weak on the cross, was so that he could die our death, so that he could do for you what had to be done, which was sin had to be punished. There was a death that had to be died and he becomes one of us in order to set us free from the fear of death. And one of the treasures for us as Christians to grow into is that happy confidence in the face of death, that willingness, as the Bible does at times, to mock death, to recognise, yes, yes, uh, the process may not be much fun and yes, death is not what we're designed for, but in the end, death will not have the last word on you. You'll be a long time dead, but if your faith is in Christ, that'll be, that'll be uh, very much alive. Let me remind you of a story that some of you have heard about Howard Guinness, who was uh, strongly involved in the early days of the EU here, when he was dying from cancer, another minister went to see him, a guy called Marcus Lane, who was also heavily involved here at various stages at the EU. Marcus Lane went to see him and said to Howard Guinness, said, Brother, do you have peace as you stand at the door of death? And there was a pause and Howard Guinness said, No, I don't. He said, and there was this bummer. And he said, Well, that's not what Marcus Lane said. But you know, that's not good. And then there was this long pause and he said, I have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So he stands before death, not in some theoretical, he knows he's going to be dead soon. But knowing that Christ became flesh to die his death, he can look confidently and joyfully through the doorway to where he's heading. Now friends, we need to sort of come to a bit of a conclusion here What we're going to do next week is to look particularly at the question of Jesus Christ as our High Priest. If you have a look at uh, verses 17 and 18, suddenly this idea, this title for Jesus as the High Priest pops up and it will now dominate the next few chapters. He set the ground, the magnificence of Jesus and the meekness of Jesus, the transcendence and the closeness. And then he says, For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This picture of Jesus Christ as being our high priest holds the central feature, holds the central place in this book. Arguably it's one of the unique things about this book that it will explain to us how when we understand what the high priest does we can come to a whole new understanding of what Jesus Christ does for us. He is both the perfect high priest and as earlier the great liberator and he does it by coming down from the position of majesty to that of meekness so that he can die for us. So then the advice that comes from it, again, is at the beginning of the next chapter, as it was from chapter 1, then you go to chapter 2 to find the the application. Chapter 3 will give us the application from chapter 2. Look at verse 1, nice small writing. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Stare at the sun. That's what he's saying. That's what he's going to say in chapter 12. Fix your attention, fix your gaze, fix your eyes, fix your mind and imagination 
on Jesus, our great high priest and the one sent from God for us. Are you weary as a Christian? Is it a bit tiresome being Christian? Has the suffering and hardship sort of taken the edge of our excitement? Fix your gaze upon Jesus. Consider him. Think. You've got good brains. Allow them to feed upon the reality of Jesus, both in his greatness and his double greatness, that he will lower himself down. There are some people who get offended at the idea of God becoming one of us. Understand it, because they sense, as I mentioned last, they sense the bigness of God. But in the end, I feel that sometimes it can be like a brittle view of God, that God is so big that he can't possibly... No, that God is so big and so great that he can lower himself in meekness and humility and die for us. He is both great in the scary sense of size and great in his grace and kindness towards us. So to stare at the sun, to not grow weary, but to grow confident in his work and to confide in him with our weariness, to take our tiredness to him. This is what's going to be picked up at the high priest. He can be sympathetic. Jesus knows what it is to live a hard life. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be an outcast, even from his family at times. He understands what it is to be human. You can well say to me, Ian, you don't understand what it's like and you're right. You can say that to Jesus if you like, but it's just not true. He does understand, not just because he's God, but because he has chosen to come and live as a human. And he knows what it is to suffer. Whatever type of temptation we're enduring, whatever sort of suffering, he has been in a very similar situation. And therefore we can go to him in confidence in his death for us and to confide in him with our sorrows and difficulties. And he will refresh us and he will renew us. Next week, uh, we're going to have a bit of a five minute interlude if we can get the sound system working. And I want to play to you what I think is the finest sermon I've ever heard. It goes for five minutes. That's an example for us all. Um, But uh, that'll be worth coming to. Even if you just come and hear that, then go. Uh, Because it picks up this idea of the greatness of the high priest. Let's pray, then we'll head off for supper. Father, we do need the teaching of your Holy Spirit so that we can hold together these two aspects of our Master. That he is inconceivably great and beyond comparison in his power as the creator of all things, full of glory and worthy of worship. And at the same time that he is so lowly of heart and so willing to be meek and to come amongst us as a servant and to live inside this sad and broken world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to be taken and stripped naked and nailed up for us, to not use your power to protect yourself, but to use all that you have to do good to us that we may be your brothers and sisters. Uh, We do pray for the energy uh, to live the rest of this day aware of your presence and help us even this week to consider you, to keep our focus upon you even as we do other things. And we pray for this help now in your name.